This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Well, welcome to another episode of Chronicles Magazine podcast. I'm here today with Daniel McCarthy. He is the editor over at Modern Age, and he also writes for The Spectator, where you should follow his column. I'll have links to both of those on the show notes page. Um, But Daniel, thank you for joining me. Thank you. I should mention as well that uh, Chronicles carries my uh, Creators Syndicate uh, column as well, syndicated. So uh, you can find me at Chronicles also. Of course. How could I? Yeah. How could I forget that? But uh, we've talked a lot about theory um, with these episodes, and I think we're on number nine now by the time this will come out. And this is really the first one when we're going to talk about practical politics. And you're one of my favorite commentators on party politics and micro politics, democratic politics, the things that are happening in the world of Republicans and Democrats uh, and, and beyond that. So headline type news. Um, But you also have had a fair amount to say about theory and the history of political development and some of the macro themes in American and Western uh, cultural and political history in general. So I I appreciate, you know, U.S. lending some of your insights um, for us today. Uh, But let me start with a little bit of background, because the first time I really, um, you know, heard about you, we've actually never talked like this before. But the first time I really became acquainted with your name was actually uh, in 2008 with the Ron Paul stuff. But presumably you had been interested in politics before that. Um, Why don't you just give us a little rundown of, um, you know, where you came from and how you kind of came to these ideas? Because I know you've had some political development over time and uh, in the quickly changing ideological and political scene around us. Of course, everybody's, you know, had their changes. So where did you come before uh, Ron Paul? And uh, then we'll then we'll move beyond Ron Paul. Yeah, you know, I owe a lot of my intellectual and political development to Chronicles magazine. So back in the 1990s, uh, I was in high school uh, from 1992 to 1996. I was in college as an undergrad from 96 to 2000. And that, of course, coincides with uh, the three campaigns that Pat Buchanan uh, mounts for uh, first the Republican nomination and then ultimately running a a third party bid, the Reform Party uh, nomination that he gets in 2000. So basically, my uh, high school and undergraduate years in college were shaped by a political environment in which Pat Buchanan was the obvious champion of a real patriotic America first right that was socially conservative, that was economically um, you know, sort of serious and heterodox. It was willing to take seriously the idea that uh, globalization was not automatically a good thing, that we should be questioning it. So Buchanan's uh, economic ideas, his ideas about immigration, his ideas about foreign policy, all of those were very interesting and influential to me when I was a high school student even, and then as I became an undergraduate at Washington University in St. Louis. And I I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to see, okay, well, here's Pat Buchanan saying these things. He's writing a syndicated column. He's appearing on uh, CNN and other channels. But uh, where would I look to find uh, thinkers and theorists who go beyond where Pat Buchanan is and talk about the real sort of um, uh, background to the ideas that Buchanan is presenting? And uh, I came across Chronicles Magazine. A friend of mine had heard about it. So I started picking it up. Uh, Actually, during an internship in Washington, D.C. in 1998 was where I picked up my first issue. I still remember it. It was an issue that featured uh, John O'Sullivan and I think maybe John Lucas uh, debating about uh, Pat Buchanan's ideas and and really debating the idea of conservatism and its relationship to nationalism. That was in the summer of 1998. And uh, I immediately became a subscriber to Chronicles, and uh, it really influenced my, uh, you know, appreciation for the paleoconservative intellectual tradition. And then, uh, you know, in, in in the, you know, sort of late 90s and early 2000s, I started writing for uh, various uh, online publications, things like LouRockwell.com, which is a website run by the uh, founder of the Ludwig von Mises Institute. And uh, that was a place where Paul Gottfried was also writing, and I would run into Paul Gottfried at various uh, Mises Institute events. And so Paul and I became friends, and uh, he's still a friend to this day. Uh, one can't agree with Paul on absolutely everything. Paul is a man of you know many opinions that are all quite distinctive, uh, but he's uh, you know one of the great uh, inspirations uh, for I think any kind of paleoconservative right in America today. And so uh, really, Chronicles and, and Paul have both been you know very big influences on me. Yeah. So I mean, l- l- let's talk a little bit about that. How you know so because when Ron Paul came 
to run for the president. Um, and he had had some, try, you know, attempts beforehand, but really his big one was in 2008 and then 2012, obviously. But you you became much more involved in politics then. Uh, now you're not really in politics. You're kind of in the nonprofit. Like that's what modern, you know, modern age is sort of, you know, uh, just uh, the idea, the world of ideas and letters, um, so to speak. Uh, what, what made, because you were actually involved in Ron Paul's campaign. Is that right? That's right. I was the official uh, campaign blogger uh, for a okay. little bit in uh, the early uh, during the early primaries in 2008. I joined right after the uh, New Hampshire primary, which was a bit of a uh, you know a difficult time for the Ron Paul movement. Mm -hmm. And I was there through uh, Super Tuesday in 2008. And uh, you know, I mean, Ron Paul was already somebody that I very much admired. And what people may not know is that back in the 1990s, there was actually a lot of crossover between uh, the supporters who were aware of Ron Paul already at that point, a lot of Rothbardians, for example, and uh, paleoconservatives who were supporting Pat Buchanan and who were reading Chronicles magazine. So I was, you know, uh, very friendly to both camps, both paleoconservatives and paleolibertarians. And, um, you know, since Mr. Buchanan wasn't running any more campaigns uh, by 2008, but Ron Paul was, I immediately said, well, Ron Paul is the champion for non-interventionist foreign policy. He's the champion for generally, you know, sort of pro-American constitutionalist views. He is a, you know, socially conservative libertarian. He's someone that, you know, a person like myself should not only be supporting, but should be doing everything I can possibly do to elect him. And that included serving on his campaign. Yeah, the, the world of libertarianism now is much different than it was in 2008, 2012. Um, you know, and, and a lot of that has to do with where cultural trends have gone over the last uh, decade or two, two decades maybe. Um, but back then, I mean, you can make a case that Ron Paul was the most quintessentially conservative. You know, e even a, apart from the you know libertarian you know technicalities um, that he might have tended to on things like international trade, um, there wasn't anyone who could hold up their conservative credentials um, to Ron Paul and win a, a match like that. So um, I guess I would ask, you know, why why did the Republican Party never accept him as someone that um, they could see as carrying a conservative torch? Well, of course, back in the uh, 2000s, uh, you know, Ron Paul runs, uh, you know, in 2008, he runs again in 2012. And even then, uh, the neocons still had an enormous amount of power in the Republican Party. Uh, you know, George W. Bush was basically uh, someone who gave away the candy store to the neocons. He gave them everything they wanted, which, of course, above all, meant a foreign policy of, you know, interventionism all around the world, but particularly in the Middle East. And uh, the neocons, even after uh, George W. Bush was, you know, in his final year in office in 2008, and then even after he had left office after that, uh, they continued to hold on. They continued to be, you know, the dominant power uh, in most of the institutions on the American right and uh, even in the Republican Party. And so someone like Ron Paul, he, he would not even have gotten a hearing if he had not been so bold in taking on one of the neocon champions, Rudy Giuliani, in the South Carolina presidential debate, uh, the, uh, the uh, primary debate. In 2008, and that was that was just it was like you know smashing a hole in a dam, and suddenly you just had this flood of support for Ron Paul, because what people realized is there was an alternative to neoconservatism, and they weren't hearing that from, unfortunately from Fox News at the time, they weren't hearing it from conservative or Republican talk radio, they weren't hearing it from most other conservative magazines. The only places they could find it would be either Chronicles magazine or you know various online outlets that were quite small, and the American Conservative magazine in. Uh, in uh, in Washington D.C., modern age too. I should mention back then was also still you know keeping up an old right tradition of being opposed to an imperial foreign policy. But really, most people, most conservatives, most Republicans were not hearing about any of these outlets, and um, so there was a massive sea change that Ron Paul prompted by you know getting into the debates, by being a serious candidate, and then by directly confronting someone like Rudy Giuliani. Uh, John McCain, all of the other, you know, Republican candidates who had these neocon leanings, he directly confronted them and he really inspired people and awakened people in a way that no one had thought possible. You know, when when Ron Paul was uh, gearing up in, in 2007, 2008, the, the financial crisis was sort of at the forefront of everyone's mind. And and that was kind of the the issue that made him um, something you, so somewhat unique uh, compared to both parties, actually. Um, so it was this combination of foreign policy and, uh, you know, central banking, the Federal Reserve. You know, he, he put the Federal Reserve on the tip of everyone's tongue. Younger people were reading banking theory, um, which is is pretty remarkable uh, achievement. Um, people don't really, I mean, foreign policy obviously is, is becoming much of a bigger issue. Central banking as an issue has sort of waned, um, a little bit, but, but overall, how do you think the issues have changed over the last two decades and are there new ones? 
um, you know, what do people emphasize? Obviously, they emphasize culture, they emphasize racial issues and um, the, the, the sexual hysteria. Uh, but do you think that there is anything in Ron Paul that continues to have relevance today in terms of like practical politics? Oh, definitely. And in fact, even when we talk about economic issues and uh, the Federal Reserve, in fact, the Ron Paul movement did a great deal to begin the uh, sort of populist uprising that became a little bit diluted, but was very powerful in the form of the Tea Party. And, uh, you know, I'd have to recite chapter and verse to go back into the sort of details of history to talk about exactly how the Ron Paul movement connected to the Tea Party movement. But there was there were direct connections and the Tea mm -hmm. Party movement did take a lot of direct uh, inspiration and impetus from what Ron Paul was doing. This is all happening in 2008. It's, you know, partly, as you said, happening in response to the financial crisis. Ron Paul's presidential campaign was given a tremendous boost by the financial crisis and by the fact that people were looking for a way to understand what was happening and an alternative to these bailouts for all these crony capitalists. And Ron Paul gave them that alternative. And then the Tea Party, you know, sort of took that impetus and that spirit. And, uh, you know, a lot of those folks were Ron Paul supporters, but even the ones who weren't, uh, you know, they were receptive to some of the discussion about uh, the Federal Reserve and the discussion of crony capitalism and the idea that the, the kind of economic system we have is not actually capitalism as Ludwig von Mises or as Murray Rothbard would have understood it. It's instead a kind of, you know, sort of uh, uh, mixed economy corporatism that tends to favor certain, you know, key industries over others. Um, so Ron Paul, you know, was ahead of the curve, not just on economics and on foreign policy, but on populism itself. And uh, one of the other people who was really, you know, sort of perceptive already back in 2008 and 2012 and earlier was Justin Raimondo, who was one of the founders of antiwar.com. Uh, Justin was a supporter of Pat Buchanan in the 90s and a supporter of Ron Paul in the 2000s. And Justin recognized what was happening was a kind of libertarian populism. And Justin always knew that the populism component was just as important, if not more important, than the libertarian component. And I think that's where we are today, where populism has become a general rejection of the establishment, not only in government, not only in you know, a, a sort of crony capitalist corporate world, but also the establishment in the cultural industries, the establishment in education. Uh, there's a general populist you know, uprising right now. In some ways, it is the middle American uprising, the middle American revolution that a Chronicles writer like Sam Francis had been talking about in the 1990s. So there have been, there have been some changes in the particular issues that are most salient right now. Uh, wokeism was not as big of a concern back in the 2000s, uh, although it was a concern back in the 90s when it was political correctness. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that the wokeism of the 90s, the political correctness of the 90s, it died off because really I think it's all thanks to Bill Clinton. Because Bill Clinton was such a, um, you know, I, frankly, he was guilty of a lot of sexual harassment. You know, he was doing all sorts of things with, you know, Monica Lewinsky and uh, was generally just such a sleazy person that the progressives said, OK, well, maybe we shouldn't talk about some of these uh, feminist issues. And maybe, you know, we need to still get enough Southern votes that we can't afford to talk about, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, how we want to rewrite American history to present it as nothing but an account of, uh, you know, sort of slavery and misery and oppression and, and evil. Uh, the Democrats weren't willing to go that far back in the 90s because they, they still had to elect people like Clinton, who was morally compromised, and they still needed just enough Southern votes that they could continue to do that. And times have changed now. And, um, you know, even now, I think you see someone like um, Joe Biden tries to present a more moderate face on the Democratic Party. Uh, than the Democratic Party itself really has. And Joe Biden is still, you know, kind of like, uh, I think he strikes a lot of ordinary Americans as sort of an older version of Bill Clinton in some ways, without sort of the Monica Lewinsky and uh, Paula Jones baggage. And so people look at, you know, they, they almost see like this, this sort of uh, generational Democratic Party that starts out with a very young JFK, then you get to a sort of vigorous middle-aged Bill Clinton, and now you get, you know, in his senility, Joe Biden. But they look at all this and they say, ah, that reminds me of, you know, a Democratic Party that was, you know, pro-America and that was, you know, really part of the American mainstream. They don't look at this and say, wait a minute, these guys are actually just the front men, just really the, the salespeople for an ideology that's actually gone hard left on sexual issues, on issues of, you know, giving uh, criminals favoritism over victims of crime on, uh, you know, everything else that we, you know, have talked about, uh, you know, in the, the Trump campaigns and the Buchanan campaigns, the Ron Paul campaigns, the whole, all of it. So I think the right is rising right now because of the extent to which the left has gone absolutely insane. And Americans are, are pretty troubled by that. 
Yeah, and we're going to get to the insanity, you know, in a few minutes. Um, but I, I have one more question on foreign policy because, you know, for me, you know, I came out of just just a general Fox News viewing family, mainstream conservative, uh, not really uh, intellectually savvy or intellectually curious, um, but just that just that milieu of a Republican Party, kind of a Bush situation. But Ron Paul made it okay for conservatives to be wary of the military industrial complex and to oppose the spreading of things like democracy. And he pointed out that that was actually a progressivist sort of program. Um, how do you think Trump, uh, Trump's run, you know, much later benefited from Ron sowing the seeds um, for the Republican Party to for conservatives to realize that actually this is not good for our nation to go around the world, uh, you know, in, in a military fashion? You know, I'm a big believer in the long game in politics. And I think, you know, people who were dismissed uh, as being on the fringe in the 1990s, people like Pat Buchanan, for example, who had a great many readers, a great many viewers and listeners, but who were thought of as being outside of the political mainstream and kind of irrelevant to the real politics of the Republican Party. Well, they turned out not only to be correct, but the work they were doing back in the 90s was setting the stage for a lot of things that came later. And the same is true of Ron Paul, not only with his 2008 and 2012 campaigns, but for that matter, during Ron Paul's time in Congress, going back, you know, uh, to the 80s and I think even the late 70s. And uh, in general, with the work that Ron Paul had been doing as both a politician and an intellectual leader for a couple of decades. And in some ways, the 2008 and 2012 campaigns of Ron Paul's that were that, you know, made him almost a household name in America and a household name to a lot of young people. These were actually the fruits of, you know, 20 years or more of preparation and of hard work, spreading these ideas, building institutions like the Mises Institute. And I think what the right is doing now, it certainly is getting a big boost from the fact that uh, Donald Trump instinctively, but also I think to some degree with, you know, well-informed advisors in some cases, a few cases, you know, obviously he has a lot of terrible advisors as well. But I think there've been a few advisors who actually have read Buchanan, they have read Ron Paul, and they are, you know, helping uh, Donald Trump go in the right direction. Uh, this is creating a great opportunity for, you know, the right to kind of uh, turn in a paleo direction and to turn into both a, uh, a Buchananite and a Ron Paul direction. But the key thing is we have to be not just impressed by the immediate gains we can make with a presidential campaign like Ron Paul's or an actual presidency like Donald Trump's. We also have to keep doing the work that people like Buchanan and Ron Paul were doing back in the 80s and the 90s. We have to keep building institutions. We have to, you know, continue to have uh, Congress people like, uh, you know, uh, Congressman Gates in Florida and Congressman Massey in Kentucky and, you know, numerous senators, people like uh, Rand Paul, for example. Those people also are continuing to build a movement and to build a political apparatus that will pay big dividends in the future. So as, as important as the presidency is and as, you know, transformative as the Trump era has been, I think we can we need to continue to play the long game, and I, I sometimes worry that sometimes we will put all of our you know chips onto the next presidential election, and if that doesn't turn out our way, then we might drift off and you know get discouraged, as we saw with Ron Paul, right? A lot of young people who became involved in the Ron Paul movement uh, in 2008 and 2012, uh, they subsequently drifted away. They became you know unpolitical, or in some cases they moved left, or sometimes they moved into you know sort of crackpot varieties of the right. There's a lot of ways in which, you know, something that starts promisingly can go wrong if it's not cultivated and, you know, institutionalized and developed uh, correctly. One of the things that I've noticed, um, just because I, you know, I came into the Ron Paul movement in 2012, actually, I was kind of behind the curve for a 2008 interest. Um, but I've, you know, I've shifted my own views away from um, sort of a you know, classical or technical libertarianism to much more of a paleoconservative mindset. Um, and I'm certainly not alone. I moved together with a group of people. And I wonder um, if you have any comments on that. You know, the libertarian movement seems to have split. Um, and, and people have noticed that all over the place. You know, a lot of like the Reason magazines, the DC libertarians have become really like regime libertarians, you could call them. Um, but why are there so many other people who were um, you know, interested in Ron Paul in 2012, they're becoming much more traditional. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that bifurcation. Yeah, you know, I think the best way to understand the Ron Paul movement and the future that the Ron Paul movement should have been building is a combination of Ron's, you know, strict constitutionalism with a kind of, uh, you know, cultural moral conservatism, which, uh, you know, when you get the state out of things, you can then rebuild institutions of civil society there's a great book from the 1950s. Actually, it's about 70 years old this year. It's called The Quest for Community by Robert Nisbet. Uh, in that book and in others, Nisbet really showed that 
um, you know, before you get the state involved in doing, you know, taking care of old people, taking care of young people, uh, you know, trying to regulate everything in our lives, that in fact, human beings were able to do this for themselves through their social institutions. And so even though Nisbet was not someone who would have thought of himself as a libertarian, in fact, there's a very libertarian implication to his thought. And I think, you know, if you had, if the Ron Paul movement did create, you know, a number of institutions, Young Americans for Liberty, Campaign for Liberty, and a few other things. But I think that one thing that was missing was this idea that there should have been kind of a, a you know, a Ron Paul movement that was not just focusing on libertarianism in government and libertarianism in economics, that was also focusing on the cultural conservatism that is a complement and a fulfillment of that libertarian vision of minimal government. And if you separate those two things, then you get into some of the difficulties that you've seen libertarianism get into now, and in some cases, conservatives also get into today. So right now you see on the new right, for example, all sorts of new ideas about getting government involved to you know, correct some of the social evils that are existing in our country and using state power to correct evils. And some of those ideas are actually valid, but also there is a little bit of you know, this idea that government power is just a magic wand. And once you acquire it, you can you know, sort of wave it and do whatever you want to do and that there are no, you know, sort of no costs involved and no downsides and no unintended consequences. And I think some of my friends on the new right would actually do well to listen to Ron Paul and some of these libertarians, Rothbard and others, who would tell them, okay, here are the ways in which um, government power can actually lead to blowback. And here are the ways in which government power, even if it's used to good purposes, can actually wind up enervating and destroying and undermining and vampirizing the really healthy institutions of civil society, like the family and the church and the local community. So that's the comprehensive vision that I think the right needs. And unfortunately, um, a lot of libertarians, uh, not because they were you know, sort of indifferent to cultural issues, but just because they were so much more focused on economics and constitutionalism itself, that I think they, they didn't invest as much as they should have invested in talking about this cultural component that's necessary to have you know, ordered liberty. And as a result, uh, libertarianism then started to get hijacked more and more by the cultural left. A lot of, you know, especially when you look at a lot of academics who, you know, um, the, the university system has greater tolerance for some libertarian academics than it does for most conservative academics. And that's because, well, these libertarian academics, they're doing work in economics. It's a, it's a technical field. You know, their values are not necessarily clashing directly with the left's as much as you would if you were, you know, a conservative in, in, in government or in, in political philosophy. And so the left, you know, is willing to tolerate a certain amount of, of uh, libertarians in academia. And I think there is this tendency among libertarian grad students and others to say, well, you know, maybe we really do need to, you know, um, uh, accommodate ourselves to the progressives. And we don't want to offend them. We don't want to say things that might shock them. We don't want to be too Rothbardian or too radical, because if we are, then we're going to lose our positions in academia and we're going to suffer just as much as the conservatives have suffered. So I think that's one of the things that has caused libertarianism, especially elite libertarianism, not just, uh, you know, in D.C., but also in the, the universities, to drift culturally leftward and to reach more and more of an accommodation with a very aggressive woke left. Mm -hmm. So let's let's compare. I want to compare like the conservative movement, the health of the conservative movement today compared to what how it was in uh, Buchanan's time, because on one hand, you know, the culture is much more radically left, generally speaking, today. On the other hand, um, there is a right that's much more aware of of their own past. You know, I think the perhaps the Internet has helped out with that. Uh, but they're also they're aware of um, just how vicious the left can be, and perhaps they have their guards up a little bit uh, higher and, and more, they're more strengthened than they were in the 90s. But how would you say the conservative movement compares now compared to you know 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, of course, when the neocons were running the show, which basically gets started um, really at the end of the Reagan years, then you know it grows in strength during the 1990s, and then they they finally you know, have the George W. Bush administration in the early 2000s when they actually wield government power as well as power within the institutions of the conservative movement. The neocon era was a disaster for conservatives. Uh, it was a disaster, obviously, for paleocons and for you know, Ron Paul libertarians, but it was really a disaster even for the neocons themselves. And of course, they wound up getting... Uh, you know, the war they wanted in Iraq, and uh, that destroyed them. It wound up, you know, totally discrediting them in the end, and it created an opportunity for figures like Ron Paul and then ultimately Donald Trump to come along and to basically say the neocons, you know, led us into a disaster, a disgrace in the Middle East. And so we need to, you know, uh, have many fewer neocons in our institutions, ideally, you know, send them back into the Democratic Party. And that's exactly where they have moved. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, 20, 30 years ago, you had, you know, some good good conservatives like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Pat Buchanan, 
the syndicated columnist Bob Novak, for example, uh, the columnists at uh, Chronicles Magazine, uh, you know, other folks, there were many folks doing good work, but they were all pushed to the margins. And, you know, the uh, the major foundations that were supporting conservative institutions, the major think tanks and the biggest magazines and the biggest media outlets, they were either hostile to paleoconservatism or they were just totally ignorant of it. And they felt like they didn't have to learn any of it because, you know, the future was going to be a kind of center-right Republican Party in the mold of George W. Bush. And of course, what the neocons did and what their, you know, sort of fellow travelers in the Republican Party did is that they reimagined Ronald Reagan, who is actually a more interesting and complicated figure. They reimagined Ronald Reagan as being a garden variety, Bill Crystal style neoconservative, which he never was. Uh, but, you know, the neocons laid claim to Reagan's legacy and they laid claim to the future of the GOP. And, uh, you know, they wound up, you know, they, ha they had every, every advantage on their side. They had all the money. They had all the institutions of, the, you know, the conservative media. They had the institutions of uh, philanthropy and money. Uh, they had, you know, they, they received more respect from the mainstream media. They would be featured in, you know, sort of columns in the New York Times and the Washington Post and elsewhere. With every advantage on their side, the neocons still blew it because fundamentally their philosophy was wrong. Their vision for America was wrong. It was disastrous. And, uh, you know, they, they bear the guilt and uh, have the blood on their hands for where we are today, uh, an America in which, you know, our industrial workforce has been hollowed out, uh, an America that has, you know, sort of lost, uh, you know, it's lost a number of wars and lost its honor in these, you know, endless wars abroad, uh, and an America that, you know, is dying, you know, deaths of despair where life expectancy is falling. Uh, this is a horrible, you know, condition for such a wealthy and, you know, otherwise successful country as ours to come to. And it's a result not just of having, you know, liberals and Democrats. It's a result of having neoconservatives who were basically partners with the globalist left in creating uh, this series of disasters. Let's talk about the health of the Republican Party um, for a minute. So the neoconservatives are very ideologically oriented. Um, th their influence seems to have waned um, a bit since Trump, well, since Obama even. Um, but what do you think drives the Republican Party establishment now, uh, since it's not no longer the same neoconservative, you know, ideological framework? W what do you think drives them? Yeah, you know, there is a uh, quote from um, John Maynard Keynes, where he says that, uh, you know, uh, practical men who think that they are, you know, sort of statesmen and leaders are usually the slaves of some defunct economist, right? And, uh, you know, there are some quotes from Friedrich Hayek, if you, you know, if you're too worried about uh, Keynes, instead, there's some quotes from Hayek that basically say the same thing. Uh, philosophers and people of ideas and economists and those who, you know, sort of think deeply wind up having a long-term effect on politicians who may seem utterly brain dead. And that's basically where things stand with the Republican establishment right now. You still have a generation of leaders in the Republican Party uh, and even a generation of apprentices in the Republican Party, uh, perhaps even some who may share my last name, who uh, really resemble, you know, the neocons in most respects and who, you know, by default, uh, adhere to, you know, neocon assumptions about foreign policy, about immigration and about trade and so forth. That started to change because, you know, politicians are kind of a lagging indicator. Uh, they've seen, you know, the force of someone like uh, Donald Trump in changing the American right. And so, uh, again, someone who shares my last name and is in Congress right now has evidently, you know, started to, you know, sort of grow in a slightly more Trumpian direction, uh, a more populist direction, but they still have a long way to go. And the Republican establishment, you know, if you don't keep a constant pressure on them to move more and more in a populist direction, they're going to revert to being uh, neocons. And why will well, that will happen for a couple of reasons? Um, a lot of Republicans, and it's you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a very limiting thing. A lot of Republicans are just utilitarians. They're just businessmen who want to you know continue to be able to make profits. Uh, they they don't want to think you know very deeply about culture, about philosophy, about religion. Uh, you know, they, 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 they may go to church, they may, you know, think that uh, transgenderism is crazy nonsense, but they don't really want to, you know, uh, invest their time and especially their money in trying to fight these battles. Really what they want to do is just to be left alone. And, uh, you know, Grover Norquist, who's one of the most effective uh, Republicans in uh, uh, one of the most effective uh, coalition builders in Washington, D.C., uh, he likes to refer to his coalition as the Leave Us Alone Coalition. And there's a certain, you know, sort of decency about that, right? I mean, yeah, businessmen should not be trying to become uh, cultural czars. And uh, a lot of people just want to be left alone to raise their families and to, you know, uh, live quiet lives in their own local communities. 
conservatives have that natural instinct to kind of get out of politics and just do things locally and do things, you know, individually, privately, and uh, for the family. Uh, and that's a healthy instinct. But unfortunately, we're up against an enemy which basically wants to use comprehensive power, not just state power, but also the power of corporate America and the social networks and everything else to transform, you know, family life, to transform uh, the life of businessmen. It's basically telling businessmen, you know, now you have to make your profits um, within the limitations imposed by ESG and the limitations imposed by green ideology, the limitations imposed by, uh, you know, reparations, wokeness and other things. So the business community is now saying, well, gosh, I guess, you know, uh, we it's, it's like dealing with the mob, right? I mean, you either, you either you know, uh, pay your protection money and maybe the mob leaves you alone, or if you don't pay that protection money, they're going to come and they're going to, you know, burn your warehouse or break your kneecaps or do otherwise. Well, the left is basically has that same sort of gangster mentality. They will come and they will hammer, you know, uh, they will create uh, boycotts and they will, uh, you know, impose regulations to strangle businessmen who just basically want to left, be left alone. So the businessmen by default are willing to sort of cooperate, they play ball, and they go along rather than, you know, they, they basically become almost accomplices to those who are extorting them, precisely because they, they're afraid of facing up to that extortion. So you need to have a right today, which is uh, bolder, and is willing to actually confront the extortionists and to get rid of them, and to, you know, um, take action against them. And uh, that's a tough fight. And uh, it certainly involves, you know, some use of state power, as you've seen, especially uh, using state power to control actual organs of the state, like state universities, for example, which have become bastions of wokeness, even though they're answerable to taxpayers and they're answerable to elected representatives. Uh, so I think, you know, what Governor DeSantis is doing in Florida there is quite right. Uh, but they're, they're there's much more that needs to be done. And, uh, you know, this idea of simply becoming um, uh, people who want to be left alone either to lead just, you know, business lives or to, you know, just lead lives in a kind of happy, untouched community, which ultimately is going to be touched and corrupted by, uh, you know, these uh, uh, enemies of ours. Uh, that leave us alone idea just isn't going to work now. Yeah, it's true. There's a there's a quote, and you've probably seen it um, by Aaron McIntyre, and he basically just says, you know, the party that wants to be left alone is always going to lose to the party that wants to dominate. Um, and that's a whole different world than where we were 25 years ago. I mean, the, you could see the roots of it there, um, but we do not live in 1995 anymore, uh, and it's really becoming more obvious. And so I guess, to what extent does the Republican Party need to behave more like a confrontational politician like DeSantis in order to, um, you know, maintain its own uh, strength? You know, is is the Republican Party going to have to adopt some of these more, uh, you know, this willingness to engage in a, in a political struggle in order to survive? I think that's right. And, you know, uh, not just DeSantis, but also uh, Donald Trump, of course. Uh, shows that a right that's willing to fight back, a right that's willing to you know be unapologetic, a right that's willing to talk about immigration, for example, in quite frank terms, uh, this actually is something that resonates with millions and millions of Americans. And obviously, you know, with Donald Trump, there are a lot of strengths, and there are a lot of eccentricities or quirks which tend to you know uh, weaken those strengths somewhat. And um, so it, when I look at Donald Trump and when I look at what he achieved, especially in 2020, where he got, you know, um, he made some headway among black voters and Latino voters and others, um, that really shows me <clears throat> that this, you know, sort of um, establishment Republican idea that you have to walk on eggshells when you talk about things like immigration, because you don't want to upset Latino voters who are going to abandon you if you, you know, say anything at all that's critical of immigration. It's just false uh, that, in fact, you know, patriotic people of all, you know, backgrounds want to support a strong, you know, uh, border policy. They want to, you know, uh, continue to say, wait a minute, uh, you certainly have to draw a distinction between legal and illegal immigration, and you probably want to limit legal immigration as well, right? So uh, people who are actually, you know, citizens here, and that includes citizens of all colors and ethnicities, uh, they, you know, take seriously the, the arguments they hear from a Donald Trump and from a Ron DeSantis. So yeah, I think we do have to be much more bold and the uh, you know walking on eggshells the way the establishment you know had been doing for decades is suicidal. Let's talk about Trump. Um how do you think he's handled himself over the last 6 months, you know, after, because you know you have the indictment, you have things that are obviously politically related, you have his feud with DeSantis which I'm curious about your thoughts on, but how do you think he's handling himself now compared to 2015? Well, um I think 2015 and 2016 obviously are a high watermark, and I would like to see Donald Trump have the same vigor. I know he's eight years older, but the same vigor and the same uh, intellectual and policy focus 
that he had in 2015 and 2016. Now, of course, if there are any progressives who are tuning into this podcast, they will be shocked to hear me say that Donald Trump had policy and intellectual focuses, but he actually did. And one thing that I think we should remember about 2015 and 2016 is Steve Bannon has said that he had to constantly remind Donald Trump, talk about the wall, talk about, you know, the wall is the great symbol of how you're going to limit immigration. Now, the wall didn't get built, so that's one problem. But the other thing is that without someone like Bannon whispering in Trump's ear and saying you have to you know, keep a focus on a particular concrete issue that symbolizes the bigger issue behind it, uh, Trump is prone to drifting around and uh, you know, having ideas that are kind of scattershot. And uh, Trump also has a tendency, which is partly understandable, but goes beyond, I think, a healthy uh, limit. He has this tendency to want to talk primarily about his own conflicts to talk about you know his legal troubles to talk about you know what his enemies are trying to do to him and you know that is a uh, it's a legitimate issue it's an issue that a lot of trump voters are certainly very interested in but it's something that's not going to make any swing voters i think say i need to pull my my uh, uh voting uh, lever for trump instead of voting for biden they want to hear about concrete issues jobs they want to hear about you know uh, what trump's going to do differently in foreign policy how he's going to keep us out of the kinds of messes that we're constantly getting into they want to hear him talk about immigration. Um, so if Trump gets distracted into talking about his own personal travails rather than talking about the big issues, I think that's going to be uh, that's going to make for a weaker campaign in 2024 than we saw in 2016. And I think 2020 is a warning sign uh, because then, you know, Trump, um, he had a lot of things to deal with. Uh, and uh, he generally ran what I think was a very lackluster campaign in 2020, which is one reason why I'm not inclined to give Trump the kind of excuses that a lot of his supporters do that say, well, the 2020 election was stolen. You know, it was not his fault. I mean, he ran a terrible campaign. So the one thing is you're meant to run a campaign that is so good that the other side can't steal it, that even if they are, you know, uh, trying to do uh, all kinds of monkey business, that you still have enough support that you can afford to, you know, have some uh, votes go missing or, you know, whatever may happen. Um, Trump didn't do that. Trump really took it for granted that he was going to get reelected without, you know, working as hard as he did in 2015 and 2016. Now, that said, I'm actually encouraged by a lot of the things I see him doing here as we approach 2024. Um, you know, I think he's had some interesting new ideas talking about, for example, building new cities. That was a, uh, you know, a, a bold idea that I think is a good alternative to what you hear from these left-wing urbanists who basically want to, uh, you know, uh, pack people into these high-rise apartment buildings in, in D.C. and other places and just, you know, um, basically control people through concentration. I mean, you know, that's that's the long and short of it. Donald Trump instead is going to give people space to breathe by building whole new cities. That, I think, is a great idea. Um, but, you know, the question is, is that really going to be a winning theme? Are you going to stick to it? Um, I think Trump should always go back to his standbys, immigration, foreign policy, and trade as things that, uh, you know, are constantly uh, appealing to the kind of, especially the blue collar voters in places like Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, who make the difference between winning and losing. Uh, they did in 2016, they did in 2020, and I think they're going to do it again in 2024. If I recall, it was your position that DeSantis should hold off for now and let Trump, uh, you know, take the lead on another effort at the White House. Do you do you still stand by that opinion? And, um, you know, that's kind of a normative opinion. And then secondly, do you think he actually will stand by or do you think he'll announce as well? Yeah, it's it's a normative opinion, not so much in the sense that it's my own uh, preference as it is. It's where the logic of my analysis leads me. So DeSantis has two very big hurdles in uh, 2024. One of them is Donald Trump, who is, you know, uh, obviously uh, leading in the polls. Uh, he's not only leading in the polls, though, but he's also, you know, notoriously very tough on his opponents. And if you oppose Donald Trump in a Republican primary, Trump is going to mock you. He's going to humiliate you. He's going to belittle you. This is all going to be very damaging for DeSantis in the long run. Even if DeSantis wins the nomination against Donald Trump, he might be very badly damaged by this battle. And if uh, DeSantis doesn't win the nomination against Donald Trump, he's going to have, I think, severely compromised his future by investing all this political capital on a race that he loses. And he not only loses, but also gets humiliated and called names by Donald Trump. And uh, and Trump voters, you know, Trump himself, I think, looking at 2028, whether Trump is president again or whether he's not, in 2028, Trump will remember what happened in 2024. And if he still bears a grudge against DeSantis, that's going to be big trouble for DeSantis in the future. So that's one hurdle. The other hurdle is that, um, you know, Joe Biden is a very smart politician. He's an old guy. He's losing his edge, but he's someone who's very crafty. He knows how to do traditional vote buying, basically. 
He bought the votes of, you know, uh, college students and college graduates uh, in the midterms by offering them relief for their student debts. He's trying very hard to buy the votes of industrial middle America by having a certain industrial policy of his own. And, um, uh, you know, so Biden, you know, he's an incumbent and he has tremendous powers of patronage at his disposal as an incumbent, which he's going to use to the max to get himself reelected. This means that I think uh, Biden's actually going to be a much tougher opponent than Republicans expect in November of 2024. And of course, you know, you're going to have um, the media is not only going to be pro Biden, but they're going to make, uh, you know, any any Republican nominee into another Trump. So even if DeSantis becomes the uh, Republican nominee, they're going to say, well, DeSantis is just like Trump. He's even maybe worse than Trump. And of course, they're going to constantly say, hey, DeSantis, uh, what do you think about all these things that Trump has done? What do you think about January 6th? And DeSantis is going to be put in a bind because if he if he takes the Trump line, he's going to be basically reciting Trump's kind of message, but he's not Donald Trump. And I think that's a weakness. But if he doesn't take Trump's line, if he repudiates Trumpism, then he's going to be splitting the Republican Party. And a lot of Trump voters are going to say, wait a minute, I don't know about, you know, having DeSantis. Maybe he's, you know, drifting in a neocon direction. So for both of those reasons, the difficulty of overcoming Trump and the difficulty of overcoming Biden and the difficulty of having to deal with Trump's legacy in November of 2024, I think the smart thing for for DeSantis to do would be to conserve his political capital, conserve his energy and firepower, go into 2028 when you're not going to have Donald Trump and you're not going to have Joe Biden and you're not going to have any incumbent in 2028 uh, unless, you know, one of the older incumbents, uh, you know, dies and you get a VP in there. But putting that aside, unless a VP becomes president, uh, you know, neither Biden nor Trump is going to be able to run for a third term. So uh, DeSantis would have a clear shot, I think, at both the nomination and uh, the presidency in 2028. And while it may be possible that some other opponent would arise, you know, in the Republican primaries in 28, who might seem very strong, I, I can't see who that would be. It seems to me that, that DeSantis has one of the biggest states in the country under his command, you know, through, uh, you know, 2026 and the beginning of 2027. I think his term ends in early 27. That is, that's an ideal, you know, uh, forum to showcase your successes, your policies. It gives you a great voting block going into the Republican primaries. So I would, I would keep my powder dry and, you know, conserve my political capital if I were DeSantis and look to 2028 rather than looking to 2024, which is just going to be a maelstrom and a mess. Mm -hmm. How do you think DeSantis has handled um, his little feud with uh, Trump or or more like uh, Trump's feud with him? Do you think DeSantis has handled it very well? And do you think Trump kind of came off as as being petty and desperate in that? Or, you know, I I'd just love to hear your insight or yeah, you know, com I mean, comments on that. Trump uh, does come off as being petty. And I think that was the case even in 2016. But it worked in 2016. And little Marco is never going to recover from that. Uh, Ted Cruz is probably never going to recover from some of the things that Donald Trump said about him. And uh, so as brutal as it may be, I think DeSantis is in real danger here that he's going to wind up uh, being scorned by a lot of Republicans or seen as being a weak person because he's going up against Donald Trump, who has these bullying tactics that are terrible and that, you know, I would not normally advise someone to use. And yet Donald Trump uses them and they work. And it's very hard in politics to argue with what works. So even though I don't I don't it's certainly not my personal taste. Um, Trump isn't going to stop doing it. And I think DeSantis needs to realize that. That said, you know, I think DeSantis is has been smart for most of his uh, kind of shadow campaign not to engage Trump directly on the same terms. I think if he did that, that would probably it might damage Trump a little bit, but I think it would damage DeSantis even more and would really poison the Trump DeSantis feud that's already going on it would make it even more intense and more nasty. Um, so I think DeSantis has been right to kind of take a higher ground. And, um, you know, I think DeSantis, you know, I, I would I would like to see him continue to do that. But of course, my advice really is not to, you know, try to do that while also facing Donald Trump. Instead, just, you know, don't run in 2024, look to 2028. And then you can run as someone who is, you know, hyper competent, who is more civil than Donald Trump was, but someone who is still very, you know, fierce and using uh, everything at your disposal to, you know, um, fight against the revolutionary left. Um, so DeSantis is someone I have huge, you know, respect for and huge amounts of hope for in the future. He's younger than I am. I'm 45. He's 44. Um, so I expect DeSantis will be president one day if he doesn't blow all of his political capital in, you know, the maelstrom of 2024. Do you think the Trump indictment hurts him or helps him? Well, um, I think it does both. In the short term, it helped him a lot uh, because it made Republicans rally to him. And it put him back in the news. And one of the things that Trump thrives on is being in the headlines. 
in the long run, I actually think there are some dangers here. One of them are, I've already outlined, and that's that Donald Trump is going to talk too much about his legal cases and not enough about the issues. And I think that's going to weaken him with, uh, you know, the voters he needs to win in the Rust Belt in the industrial states. Uh, the other danger is that um, uh, Trump will uh, be seen as being so enmeshed in controversy that even Republican primary voters will start to say, you know, uh, about nine months from now or eight months from now, gee, maybe Trump is a bit too much of a risk. And maybe, you know, we, maybe we're, we're just tired of this, you know, sort of incessant, you know, sense that with Donald Trump, it's always about Donald Trump's personal battles. You know, it's two impeachments. It's, you know, various uh, FBI investigations. It's Russiagate. It's, you know, um, uh, the stuff we're getting now from the New York, uh, you know, attorney, all this, you know, just sort of endless controversy that surrounds Donald Trump and stops him from being effective, stops him from working on, you know, the policies that matter to us as middle Americans. Uh, I think Republican voters, you know, have a limited amount of patience for this. So in the long run, it's going to be a problem if Donald Trump doesn't, you know, start campaigning, you know, ever more fiercely on issues and not get, you know, sidetracked into uh, the personal difficulties that the left creates for him. Let's talk about the Democratic Party. <clears throat> so you um, it's your opinion that Biden's going to run again. Uh, some people have said he they didn't think he was or he wasn't fit. Um, but I guess beyond Biden, uh, where, where do you think the strengths are? Do you think that they're going to you know, begin to continue? Do you think they're going to continue to emphasize um, the, the transsexual stuff or the racial stuff? Is that kind of on the future for the Democratic Party? I think it totally is. Um, I, I think the Democratic Party is going to continue to be quite radical on all those fronts. And I don't think anything at this point is going to bring them back to the center. So think about Joe Biden, right? I think he's he turns 80 years old this year. He may already be 80. Um, he is um, a relic of a bygone era. And as I said, I think he reminds a lot of ordinary Americans who don't follow politics closely of good looking, uh, you know, sort of... Um, uh, center left or center or just centrist Democrats like JFK or the way in which Bill Clinton was perceived. Bill Clinton was actually a very left wing president, but he does have this, you know, sort of uh, America has this false memory of Bill Clinton as being more of a centrist than he actually was. Well, the same is true with Joe Biden. They look at him and they think that they see a centrist. And in fact, he's a front man for the left. But I don't think that the Democrats have anyone younger than Joe Biden who can do what Joe Biden is doing. I don't think they can put Gavin Newsom up, for example, and have people respond to Gavin Newsom the way they respond to Biden or responded to Clinton or to JFK. And uh, I certainly don't think they can put up a candidate like AOC or, you know, uh, Pete Buttigieg or any of these others and have Americans feel, OK, this is basically a normal person, even if his party has some wack wackos in it. I think any of these other candidates they put up there, they're going to say, wow, Gavin Newsom is in charge of California, where you have, you know, these cities that are basically turning into wastelands downtown because of all the crime and, you know, all of the uh, regulation strangling economic opportunity. Uh, I think um, I think most Americans don't want America to be California. Uh, California has its advantages. You know, it's a beautiful natural environment, but uh, Gavin Newsom is someone who makes it a very difficult place for ordinary people to live. And uh, similarly, I think the rest of the Democratic bench is very, very weak. I don't see anyone who looks like a, a clear, you know, uh, presidential material for 2028. Uh, Newsom is clearly very ambitious. He wants to get it. Buttigieg wants to make a comeback, but I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, Kamala Harris, you know, um, she is never going to be president uh, unless, you know, Joe Biden happens to die in office. But um, she's very ambitious, and I don't think she wants to stop, you know, just being VP. So uh, she probably wants to run for president, and the only thing that would dissuade her might be a Supreme Court appointment. So uh, the Democrats, uh, she's electoral, she's ballot box poison, I think. So the Democrats don't want her to be, you know, a presidential contender. But it's very difficult for the Democrats, you know, having created these, um, uh, you know, these uh, uh, boxes that have to be checked in terms of sex and race and ethnicity and sexuality. Uh, and then they have to start looking for presidential tickets, a president and vice president. And it can't just be two white guys, right? It's got to be, you know, the right mix of different colors and sexes and, and uh, sexual orientations, uh, which is really, you know, you'd expect if you want to win, you've got to be meritocratic. So the Democrats are going to suffer the consequences of their own affirmative action here. Um, so I think the Democrats are pretty weak in the future, but uh, Joe Biden himself is still a lifeline to the past, a Democratic Party that was more centrist and more successful. And so I think he's going to be formidable in 2024, just as he was very formidable in 2020 and in 2022. Uh, I've underestimated Joe Biden before, and so I'm not I'm not going to underestimate him again. I'm thinking of 2024 as being a year in which Biden is actually very strong and probably has the upper hand. 
there's a lot of pressure points in the Republican Party to, uh, you know, by the the populace at large um, to really to really make the Republican Party something that is uh, much more reflective of, of where the people want to go and the things that matter to them. How well do you think the Democratic Party has its pulse on its own constituencies? Well, the Democratic Party knows that it has a lock on most of our cities, and they, the Democratic Party is counting on the idea that blue cities will turn red states blue eventually. It'll turn them purple first and then blue. Um, and the Democrats seem to be very successful. I mean, it's appalling, but look at what just happened in Chicago, right? You had Lori Lightfoot, who was an absolutely terrible mayor, and she was rightly defeated in the Democratic Party's own primary. But then the Democrat who ultimately ran uh, won the runoff election uh, was someone who's going to be at least as, as far left as Lightfoot was, and probably even more so. And perhaps he'll learn a lesson from Lori Lightfoot's face, but fate, but uh, perhaps he won't. And uh, there was a you know Democrat running against him, Paul Vallis, who was um, a little bit more conservative, you know, still a Democrat, but you know less crazy, and uh, he lost. This is basically what the Democrats see happening. The Democrats see the future of America as being the the present of our cities right now. So Chicago right now is what the Democrats want national politics to look like in the future. California right now is what the Democrats want national politics to look like in the future. And if you continue to have uh, a complete evisceration, destruction, and eradication of the Republican Party and even of moderate Democrats in our cities, then I think the Democrats are going to get that future because our cities are tend to be the places where population is concentrated, not just in an obvious way, but the cities are still growing, even you know post-COVID. Even with people working from home, the cities are still tending to you know add population. And uh, I don't see anything that shows me that um, cities in blue states are or cities in red states rather are going to you know um, become more Republican over time rather than less Republican over time. So the GOP has a serious problem here with trying to get a foothold in urban America. If it can do that, then I think it can block uh, the Democrats' future. But if it can't do that, the Democrats are going to have uh, you know a future, even if they be as wacky as they are. They're going to continue to, to win because they're going to continue to have places like Chicago and Philadelphia and, you know, ultimately places not only like Austin, but also, you know, Dallas, Houston and, you know, big cities, even in a red state like Texas. You know, if you ask Paul Gottfried, you know, where the younger people were trending, he would say, you know, they're all basically, you know, 80, 90 percent going to the left. Um, do you disagree with that analysis or do you think there's any hope for the younger generations to find more of a, a conservative uh, strain? No, you know, I think that uh, among young conservatives, uh, they are often stronger and more intellectually engaged than uh, the young conservatives of, again, 25 or so years ago, when America seemed much more conservative in general and much healthier. But because of that, the conservatives were rather complacent, especially the young ones. Whereas now I see a lot of energy and a lot of vigor among young conservatives. And I think that does give us hope for the future. That said, Paul is, is basically right, um, and he's certainly demographically right. And, you know, in terms of pol polling and so forth, we find that young Americans are, you know, uh, they are strongly Democratic. They actually have been coming out to vote in the last several elections. They've been voting very heavily for the Democrats. Uh, they've been bought off in part by uh, student loan forgiveness from the Biden administration. They've also been indoctrinated in increasingly left-wing public schools, increasingly left-wing uh, universities. Um, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s, the universities were already quite left wing, but they were not as monolithic and not as aggressive as they are today. And so in a younger generation that's coming of, of age with these very aggressive views, um, they are going to be farther to the left than, you know, sort of my generation was uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so I, I'm very worried about that. And the Democrats, you know, they have this by controlling both immigration and education. Uh, they are able to control the future of the country because the future of the country demographically tends to be dictated by uh, immigrants, not only because immigrants are being brought in in very large numbers, but also because they tend to reproduce at somewhat higher rates than Americans who are, have been here for longer, many more generations. Uh, the other thing is that when, they, when the Democrats control, when liberals control uh, education, they're able to take even young people from conservative families and from red states and indoctrinate them into all of the beliefs that you know progressives want them to hold. So if you control those two kinds of manufacturing citizens through immigration and through education, you're going to control the future of the country. So the right needs to take this very seriously. And that's why I'm glad to see both DeSantis and Trump getting serious about immigration, getting serious about uh, you know fighting back against the wokeness in the academy. Uh, if we don't do that, then we are extinct. There's, I remember there's a um, an, an essay in Jacobin magazine a few years back. Um, they talked about the uh, strategy of swarming the the district attorneys, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which seems to have 
paid off, you know, in in a mighty way over the last few years. Um, is there anything like that in conservative circles? Uh, you know, obviously you have DeSantis who's pushing back at a decentralized level, um, but do you think there's other, you know, momentum uh, from you know at the county level or the local level? of conservatives who realize that they actually do have um, power, um, even if it's over a smaller jurisdiction, to kind of defend their own constituencies? And do you think that'll be uh, a winning uh, strategy for the future for conservatives? I don't. And it's a great question because it allows me to explain why I think that won't work. So, you know, I always wondered, why is it that you have, you know, conservatives who get involved at the grassroots, a local level, who serve on school boards, et cetera, why is it that the school boards nevertheless keep going left and the school administrators go even farther left, even though the administrators are hired by the school boards? Why is it that, you know, even though we, we can win school board elections, the Christian coalition, for example, was very effective at doing this back in the 1990s. They took control of a lot of school districts, and yet it didn't, it didn't fix the problem. In fact, the problem got a lot worse. And it's precisely because of what I said earlier on. At the local level, conservatives are businessmen, conservatives are family men, conservatives are involved in their church. Their time is divided in a dozen different ways. A school administrator, on the other hand, who probably you know, isn't married and doesn't have even children of their own, right? A school administrator is a full-time professional who is working to advance a left-wing agenda in their community. So of course the amateurs are gonna lose out to the professionals. So the effective organizing the right has done over the last 30 years, uh, you know, people have their various gripes about the federal society and they say, oh, it's not you know, hardcore enough or whatever. But the Federal Society has actually done what it set out to do. It has appointed, it has got judges appointed. Those judges have generally moved, you know, in the direction the Federal Society wants them to move, whether or not that's the direction that, you know, other folks on the right would like them to go. So the Federal Society, by organizing at a national level and by having local chapters that, you know, are part of a national coalition or nat national network, has been able to be very effective. I think we need to do the same thing. Look at what happened, as you mentioned, with the uh, prosecutors. You had Soros and you had other left-wing organizers and left-wing donors at a national level basically say, we're going to take over you know, the, um, uh, the prosecutors at every level, you know, federal, state, local. We're going to go and get our people in those offices, and then we're going to control the justice system. We need to be just as comprehensive in fighting back against them. We can't do it, you know, try to do it locally in one place, because even if you succeed in getting a good prosecutor put in, you know, in one place, that person's probably going to be overruled by a district judge or by any number of other, you know, uh, more powerful, larger left-wing authorities. I think that's why it's um, interesting to see some of the moves that are happening in Texas right now and also in Florida, where uh, some prosecutors and some judges are having their powers limited by Republican legislatures and by Republican governors. I think we're going to have to see a lot more of that. The left is going to scream bloody murder when that happens. But uh, unless we we fight as comprehensively and as, you know, as strongly as a sort of national network, not as, you know, a sort of monolithic, you know, national movement, but as a network, as something that is genuinely federalist in the sense that it's not just local, it's not just isolated in its own little pockets, but really does connect with the efforts that everyone else is doing, you know, in other states and at the federal level. We have to have that kind of federal nationalism if we're going to win the, not just the culture war, but the lawfare that we're fighting today. Okay, last question. So what do you think the top issues are going to be in 2024? And where do you think the conservatives sh uh, should focus their own resources going forward? So those are almost, uh, they're two related questions, but they're also in some ways questions that pull in opposite directions. In 2024, I think um, Donald Trump is going to make the Ukraine conflict, uh, the, the, the war between Russia and Ukraine, uh, one of the central issues. He's going to make, he's already doing that to some degree in the primary. I think he's going to do that uh, even more with Joe Biden. He's going to say Joe Biden is a failed foreign policy president, uh, that we are sending a blank check to Ukraine, that it hasn't won the war over there, that it isn't going to win the war you know, in 20 years, and that you need someone like Donald Trump, who's a stronger negotiator, who can bring peace to Ukraine and uh, you know, uh, basically restore stability uh, on the borders of Russia. Uh, and Trump, of course, is going to be painted as uh, a Putin sympathizer, as he has been, you know, for the last 10 years. Uh, and uh, anyone who supports Donald Trump is going to be uh, presented uh, by the neocons and by the liberal media as being a Putin sympathizer and a Putin agent. So this is going to be, I mean, it's it's almost, it reminds me of, um, you know, back during the, uh, the early years of the American Republic, uh, you know, basically the John Adams administration and even the George Washington administration, the French Revolution and its repercussions were a major domestic issue in America because different Americans were aligning on different sides and they, they were accusing one another. The Jeffersonians accused the, uh, you know, the Federalists of being, you know, pro-English and monarchists and everything. 
And John Adams thought that Thomas Jefferson was an actual Jacobin who's going to, you know, have a bloody revolution if he ever got power in America. Uh, I think that kind of, you know, divide over foreign policy is going to uh, be replicated to some degree uh, in 2024. And so uh, that's, you know, just one of the things we have to be aware of going in. Um, I think the economy is going to be a major thing as well. So basically, I think Americans want to know, are they going to have good jobs? What kind? What does our what does our economy look like in the future? Is it an economy that's going to have a middle as well as having the winners on top and the losers on bottom, or is it going to be an economy without a middle where there are you know the the super rich and those who are getting richer and you know a service sector that is basically just you know um, Uber drivers and you know nail nail salon technicians and tattoo artists and whatnot. You know it's interesting. I live in a uh, a suburb of Northern Virginia, basically a DC suburb. And it's, uh, you know, it's a historic place. It's It's got, you know, uh, cobblestone streets and brick paved streets. And, you know, it's very historic and whatnot. Uh, but it doesn't have any bookstores anymore, at least not within, you know, walking distance of where I live, within a few miles radius. The la One of the last bookstores that was there, there is a Christian bookstore still there, thankfully. But uh, the main bookstore that was there has now been replaced by a tattoo parlor and by a vape store. So this is the American economy of the future. And, uh, you know, Nothing against people who want to get tattoos or vaping, even though I certainly don't recommend tattoos uh, and vaping, you know, come on, guys. I mean, just smoke cigarettes. Right. I mean, forget the vaping stuff anyway. But putting my own my own prejudices aside, um, a lot of working class people would like both tattoos and vaping. Fine. Um, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of working class people don't want to be abandoned to that. Right. They would still like to live in an America that aspires to something greater where you can you know, move from the you know sort of lower rung of the economy into the middle class. You can start a family. You can be a breadwinner. Uh, I think that's going to be a, a, the big question of 2024 as well. And uh, Trump has, you know, talked about that a bit. I think DeSantis has not talked about it enough yet. And Joe Biden, unfortunately, is talking about it quite a lot. And that's one reason I think Biden's actually going to be very formidable in 2024. The trans stuff, um, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of, you know, media sensationalism about it. And conservatives are going to talk about it a lot. Uh, the left is going to continue to, you know, push, you know, more and more radical ideas. Um, but I don't know that the average voter is really going to make his decision based on uh, transgender policy, unless you can really bring it home, right? And I think, you know, if the question becomes, are you going to have these bans or not have these bans, voters might be, you know, willing to say, yes, we want to have these bans on, you know, uh, sex change operations for children. That, I think, is a winning issue. But I think that's probably not going to be a national issue in 2024. And it's going to be very hard to mobilize that social issue as uh, the thing that's going to put Republicans over the top. It's important. It's a battle that needs to be fought. But I think we have to be careful not to neglect economic issues and, you know, these questions in foreign policy uh, as we talk about the social issues that are very dear to us, but they aren't necessarily going to move those median voters. Same thing with abortion. I think abortion is going to be a very tough issue for conservatives in 2024, just as it was in 2022. And, um, you know, we need to stick to our guns. We need to be pro-life. But uh, we also have to realize that, you know, the country we should again have a, a long view here. We want to, you know, win the country culturally as well as legally. It's going to be a long fight. And so, uh, you know, don't think that if you can't do everything right away, that means, you know, everything is defeated and you just need to pack up and go home. Uh, you're, it's going to be just as long to, you know, uh, get abortion eliminated as it was to get Roe v. Wade overturned. So it's going to be, you know, probably many, many years, if not decades uh, of this battle. Uh, and in the short term, it's probably going to continue to be an issue that, uh, you know, hurts Republicans at the ballot box. And, um, you know, there are people who say, well, you know, a lot of pro-life Republicans got reelected in 22. That's true. But whenever the Democrats were able to make abortion the issue in the 2022 elections, uh, they did very well. And uh, I suspect, again, not based on my preferences, but based on my, uh, you know, sort of uh, objective analysis, that the Democrats, you know, will continue to, you know, use that issue very effectively. And we need to think more and more about how to counter that effectively, uh, which is going to involve, you know, not just talking about our principles, but also trying to find other ways to make sure that women, uh, women voters know in particular that, you know, their lives are, you know, they may be very concerned about abortion. They may be, you know, pro-choice. They may be abortion rights supporters. But are they also concerned about crime? Are they also concerned about an America in which, you know, violent criminals are getting out of prison, you know, very soon after they commit rapes, you know, things like that. Uh, we saw that um, the uh, the city government in, in Washington, D.C., the city council, tried to pass a revision of its criminal code that would have lessened penalties for a lot of crimes. And even a lot of, uh, you know, Democrats, uh, some of whom had, you know, sterling feminist credentials said, wait a minute, you're going to be putting more rapists down on the street, you're going to be putting more carjackers out on the street, we're not going to go for this. 
And so Biden said he would sustain a Republican veto, you know, coming out of, uh, you know, the House. And uh, so the Democrats had to, you know, retreat on that issue. Uh, if we probably, if Republicans can find a way to talk about crime and really attach the, the fear of crime to, you know, a lot of voters who have doubts about the Democratic Party, then we're going to, you know, do very well. On the other hand, uh, the Democrats were able to blunt our, you know, discussions of crime in 2022 and in 2020, and they were able to hype, you know, abortion uh, fears instead. And so as a result, uh, you know, they did very well in 2020 and 2022. So those are the, uh, those are the uh, battle lines in uh, 2024. I think what uh, the right needs to do again is to play a long game. And uh, it's great, you know, to, you know, fight very intensely in 2024, but we have to continue to build institutions. We have to be able to, we have to be able to, able to advance our agenda, whether we are in power, whether you have a Republican in the White House or whether you don't. And the, the, the left is very good at this. The left, you know, they're never deterred. They were continuing to advance, you know, same-sex marriage, for example, even with George W. Bush in the White House. George W. Bush said he was against same-sex marriage. Even even Joe, uh, sorry, even Barack Obama said he was against same-sex marriage. And yet the left continued to advance that even when they didn't have a president on their side. We sometimes put too much emphasis, it, you know, uh, on these political battles. They matter. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that we should be complacent. But we need to continue to build institutions, fight, you know, in the courts. We need to fight, you know, at the level of public education, especially education, uh, because, again, if the Democrats control the immigration spigot and if they control education, then they will, you know, automatically control America's future. And if we don't start fighting the battles, you know, on immigration and on education and also the battles in our cities and to get, you know, voters who are concerned about crime to start voting Republican, which they haven't been doing, uh, then again, we're going to go extinct. Well, perfect. I appreciate your taking the time to do this, and that was a you know a great discussion on on the horizons, you know, where things are going in the next couple of years. And I think as we get closer to the election, I'd love to have you back on. But in the meantime, I hope everybody checks out your uh, column at Chronicles Magazine and the Spectator. You know, I, I love reading your Spectator uh, columns, and then of course you're the editor at Modern Age, and do pick that up. I'm supposed to be selling Chronicles Magazines, but also. Please subscribe to Modern Age. It's one of my favorites as well. So, Daniel, thank you for your time, and we'd love to have you back. Thanks. I've really enjoyed it.